Welcome into an installment of the MTOM Show podcast. I'm Paul Yeager back in the studio this time. Colleen Bradford's Krantz. Colleen Bradford Krantz, however you want to say your name. What should we call you? <laughs> That'll work. Colleen is good. Colleen is good. Uh, okay, Colleen, you uh, frequent guest. I like to call you the Terry Gar. Whenever you uh, we need somebody, you are there and you answer us. But what we need to do is update people on some of your stories. You have been doing uh, a whole bunch of uh, items for the Market to Market TV show. Let's start with uh, – I'm going to start with the story – about your most recent feature about ducks. Okay. And I was somewhere, uh, someone who watches the show said, hey, a couple of weeks ago you had a story about, um, uh, what was it? I said, ducks? Yes, ducks. <laughs> How did you guess that? And they they liked the story because they remember when they used to have duck as a dining option. What prompted the duck story? I, I um, try to pay attention to what states we haven't been to a lot and – um, products we haven't covered a lot, you know, so I, I can't remember what I ran across, but something made me just wonder about duck production, you know, and we hadn't really, other than maybe seeing some in like hobby farms and so on. And so I started looking up like, who are the, where is most of the duck in the country come from? And it turns out it's Indiana, which we were due for a trip there anyway, I think. And so, um, so I, I found a company called Maple Leaf Farms. That's the largest in the country, I believe, or yeah, it's 10 million, 10 million ducks. And I think that's, um, you know, a great per they're the largest for sure in the U.S. So part of the story was geography, but part of the story was also just the topic itself. So how did you come up with the topic? I think it was really, like I said, I was mostly just curious. I, I find myself being curious about different products, you know, food products that we've not told the story of, like, how do you raise a large number of ducks? And um, so I really wanted to focus on that. But I also wondered about avian influenza going on at the time and if they'd been affected. Um, it turns out they hadn't. So really it became a story just about um, this company's history and duck production and how they got involved. So. And you went to Indiana in the f late summer or was it this was, in the, uh, I think in it was fall? September when I went. Okay. Was, yeah. And they and it wasn't an HPAI concern? It turns out they've not, not been affected. They have a lot of contract producers. You know, they basically duck duck farms all over that are independently managed and um so they, but they'd been fortunate that at that point they had not had any infections i think um and i think they've managed to be free or minimally impacted which is amazing so but i, I think ducks maybe are less susceptible to it or something um but we we didn't end up focusing on that a lot so I had another conversation um, about your story with our analyst from that show. It was Mark Gold. Normally, a little behind-the-scenes story when the story airs, uh, when we say, and here's our cover story. Go to cover story. The analyst moves from their chair off camera, onto camera. They're mic'd up. And sometimes they're paying attention, and they look, and they look. Mark Gold was like, oh, I love duck. I love <laughs> duck, and I just – and I know that group. I've had their product. Uh, in fact, I might try to get that for supper tonight. That's <laughs> so funny. What so we didn't mention anything odds. during the show, but we started talking about it during Market Plus. And so he kind of went on about how he had prepared it and, and various items. So I have to say your stories usually prompt some type of reaction from people. <laughs> and it, it proved it again that that was... Even if they're just because they're so unusual yeah. <laughs> or odd. Well, it's... I think that's part of it. I mean, is that... I mean, yeah. when you look for a story... You mentioned geography, but you also look for a story. But what trips your interest on how you pick something? Oh, I I, th I think a lot of it is just I try to be tuned into what I'm curious about, you know, related to agriculture or even what conversations I hear when I'm around 
my family that's in you know cattle business and and others who I run into and you just you start listening to those questions people raise and usually it's just a casual conversation and you don't think more will come of it but um, sometimes you follow those down a, down a road a ways and you either that becomes a story or something related is interesting that you um, you know you hadn't considered before so it's it's really just listening to what people end up talking about or I'm curious about and not ignoring those random <laughs> obscure thoughts like, like I was thinking that, I forgot what I was thinking about some product the other day I got at the store I'm like oh, I wonder where this is grown and I'll probably look into it later and end up in whatever state it's from. <laughs> I should admit, before we get going, this is the MTOM podcast, which is a production of Iowa PBS and the Market to Market TV show. And again, if you have any feedback for me, it's paul.yeager at iowapbs.org. I feel like I'm resetting uh, something here, but uh, it's like a radio program or something. But it's it's not. It's a podcast. Uh, if you have feedback for Colleen, how do you do that? Um, it's Colleen.Krantz, K-R-A-N-T-Z, at iowapbs.org. Colleen or Colleen? I, I pronounce it Colleen, but honestly, Colleen. I, I hear it so much both ways. I answer to both. <laughs> C-O-L-L-E-E-N yes. dot K-R-A-N-T-Z yep. at iowapbs.org. That's right. Uh, what would you like to hear? You always like story ideas, but any specific story ideas you want to hear about right now? Well, I did uh, the one I pitched you this morning. I was talking to Paul about the this idea of, um, and I won't get into the whole background, but basically I was um, interested in how apparently there's not much for um, refugee relocation into rural areas of the U.S. anymore. I haven't really confirmed all that, but it's tied to a rule that you have to be within so many miles of public transportation. So if you have, say, refugees from Afghanistan or somewhere else, um, you know, who are fleeing their countries, they're they're not likely to end up in rural areas anymore, which they used to. And and I, I thought it'd be really interesting to go back and talk to refugees who came long ago um, and settled in rural areas first, because I think that's a different experience and sometimes um, better, sometimes worse, probably, depending on where they came from. Uh, so I, I really would love to locate some refugees, you know, not just immigrants, but specifically refugees who've come to rural areas of the U.S. and maybe have interesting stories about what they were fleeing or and what their impressions were coming to a rural area. Um, so if anyone has ideas, I would love to hear those. And it doesn't matter where it is in the country. That's right. It doesn't we'll, matter. We'll hear about because uh, it might be a state we, we want to go to. That's right. Yes. Okay. Uh, so anything else on ducks? I'm sorry. I cut off the duck conversation. No, I think it was just uh, – it's just it was fascinating the amount that the U.S. produces, but we don't eat that much. You know, like I think it was an eighth of a pound per person, and I honestly haven't had that much duck. I, I have before, but when, um, but I think what they explain there is a lot of people maybe grew up trying wild duck, which has a whole different taste, just like any other animal that's raised in the wild has a different taste than a domestic animal would. Um, and these were all Pekin ducks, and um, so they've it tasted like dark turkey meat to me. Um, so. It's uh, it's it was interesting. That the Midwest tends to not um, take it in their grocery stores as much. Um, maybe Mark Gold can change that. But <laughs> <laughs> but the the East Coast, West Coast, and some of the larger cities do have some pockets where they are big consumers of duck. Um, but it mostly goes outside the country. And that was a fascinating part of your story. And there's always something in there that uh, we need to pay attention to. Uh, uh, 
I always enjoy getting the comments from someone who's like, oh, I liked that story, and, and they have the personal connection, like I mentioned with the duck. Uh, you have mentioned uh, some of the other stories that you're – or one of the stories that you're thinking. You also have a couple others that you are preparing uh, right now. In fact, I think one, you always are a curve wrecker because you've already, I think, have this one pretty much done. Yeah. The So I'm working on a story looking at no-till – um, conventional till comparison. And it, that one was actually motivated by a federal report. It, it wasn't really anything earth shattering, but it just sort of quantifies where we've come over time in terms of shift from um, conventional tillage to, um, you know, sometimes reduced or no till. And so I really wanted to do a story, but I, part of that was, I was curious about, I kind of remember this, but I, I really wanted to go interview people who were, you know, I think every county had a farmer who was the first one to go to no-till. The rogue one that you <laughs> called it, or how, you had a different term yeah, for it. The, the rebel, whatever. Yeah, the it was the, oh, there's a, I interviewed someone with soil and water in Missouri, because this story was between Missouri and Michigan. And I forgot what he said, but he said, one third of people are the adapters, early adapters, and this applies to lots of industries, but agriculture too. And then the second group of, second third is the ones that follow the adapters. And then the third of we're not changing no matter what. <laughs> so he, uh, I was going to find some of those early adapters who um, sometimes were looked at like they were, you know, off their rocker, I guess. So he, uh, I found a guy in St. Joseph, Missouri, who for his area was one of the first to jump into no-till and, it was a fun interview because he, I think he understood what I was getting at. I wanted to hear what it was like then. And he told a fun story about, you know, trying out his first uh, drill in the first year he did it in 1983, I think. Um, and how he made the mistake of doing it next to a paved road. And so <laughs> everybody was stopping him and staring as he got, the drill got clogged up and he hadn't quite figured it out. So we, he said, yeah, I'm sure there was a lot of talk about me that year. And what year do you think that was? He said that was in 83. 83. That's pretty yeah. innovative uh, at that time. Yeah. And it's funny because really, like, I think there's some, the very first documented, maybe no-till outside of universities, which really were the first to sort of demonstrate it on large scale, um, maybe Purdue even. But they, there was, I think, Illinois and Indiana had a couple that were in the 60s, I think, um, but between then and the early 80s, you still didn't see much until some of the first, I mean, I, I think by the 80s, you were starting to see some in every county. Um, and I, I seem to remember it mid to late 80s, yes. uh, a little more mainstream uh, yes. for that one third that you, you speak of that yeah. were the early adopters. Uh, any idea what the percentage is now? Yeah, so that'll be in the story and we break it by region, but nationwide, it's uh, one third is continuous no-till, one third is reduced till, and the other third is still conventional. Um, so it's um, and and that's quite a change, of course, over time. It's probably not as fast as some people would like, and <laughs> um, faster than others. But the the region, any guess what region had the highest percentage? There's one region that had 65% um, no till, continuous no till, and one the next second highest was 48%. You want to guess what those two regions were? Uh, this is uh, my podcast. I'm the only one allowed to ask questions here. <laughs> So Come if on, you could play the game. Uh, okay, let's play the game. When you say region, or, uh, do you mean state? Well, they do you mean a region. Think of a re yeah, agricultural regions like they said northeast. I would probably guess um I'm going to go upper plains. That's second place. Good job. So the northern plains are 48% no continuous no till. And it was East Central that was uh, 65% and what would, and like Central, Ohio. Okay, that would like be Ohio, Ohio, Indiana. Maybe Pennsylvania a little. Oh, okay. I don't remember the exact states in there, but... That'll be in the story, which I think we have scheduled to come out in the next month or so. 
Um, I forgot the exact date. Okay. But, well, that's good. Uh, upper yeah. plane, any specific reason why in those regions that they do it more than others? Well, I think probably in the northern plains, it's the flatness and the the likelihood of wind-blown soils um, being an issue. So that makes sense there. And I'm not sure East Central why that one is dramatically higher. It's just unless there's just more people that tried it early and it just got picked up faster in that region for some okay. reason. But. Uh, other things on the no-till story that uh, that you think we'd be interested in in the production of the story or the story itself? Well, I did, like I said, I was in St. Joseph, Missouri talking to a producer there and they have um, less soils and hilly ground. So that, that area probably did pick it up a little faster than some areas out of necessity runoff and um, but then I was also in Michigan and I interviewed a couple um, younger brothers. Um, I guess one of them is a corn warrior. It's a show that he was known for being a corn warrior, Jake Droz and his brother Ryan Droz. And um, they live about 20 miles um, east of Lake Michigan and farm there with their father. Um, and so it's lake effect region and so what happens is they don't the ground doesn't really freeze there because of this dense or massive blanket of snow i guess so that changes the dynamics a little they have much um they don't have that breaking freezing and thawing effect that most people get so they don't even though they're very innovative i would say with trying new techniques they don't um they don't do very much um no-till they do almost mm. a, a lot of conventional um, so I wanted to make sure I included somebody who had, you know, what they see as a challenging situation that makes it much more difficult. They say they get extremely deep ruts in the spring if they try to ruts, ruts, like not roots. Sorry, ruts. Okay, like, like a he would describe them as like a foot deep. You know, if they just went, um, yeah, if they tried to go directly into planting right away. So, um, so yeah, that was that was interesting because we were able to get sort of another perspective and um, and yeah, so that's that really wraps up most of what I was doing there. But we were also in Michigan for the bug drone story, if you know what I'm talking about. Bug and drone I, was run, I'm going to say, no six. November. Okay, it was about six weeks, yeah. Yeah, it ran on November 18th is the week that one ran. Um, and that was, if you, I could explain Go that ahead. story for a company that was is looking at sort of an alternative option as insects become resistant um, to pesticides. They're using sterile insect drops from a drone um, to, you know, basically compete with the other insects and reduce populations. And so it was it was really interesting to the mix of the technology of the drones with the sterile insect technology, which actually is pretty old. But um, but it was we also had help from a PBS affiliate in Washington State that went to an orchard there that's been using this and they they had they were surprised at the luck they had with it that it actually works. Um, so I th that was an interesting one too that I thought I should mention. As you should. Uh, can we say what your other story after no-till is? I'm looking at antibiotic resistance, which we've done stories on before, um, but I want to look back at the results of a, five years ago, there was um, a veterinary feed directive rule enacted by the federal government where um, basically, you're not supposed to routinely feed antibiotics um, to your animals, your livestock. And and when you treat them, you need to have a veterinarian involved in some way or sort of ongoing relationship. Um, so it's it did demonstrate a drop. I, I guess I should explain the whole point of this was to um, the concerns about antibiotics becoming resistant or bacteria becoming resistant to antibiotics. And so, um, so the... 
that that story, I'm going to look at the change in use. It has dropped about 38%, I think, from the peak use of antibiotics in livestock. Um, but I do want to sort of take a broader look at other animals and see what's um, in human use and um, sort of where are we at with antibiotic or bacterial resistance. Well, and that has been a topic of if you've had COVID, do you have resistance or do you have, I just heard something last night of the moment your kid is still sniffling from the first virus, they've already probably have the next one that's coming. Yeah. Why are we having that issue? Is it because of the human resistance? But you're talking in livestock. But well, a lot of the bacteria does cross over or sort of is common to our world. Um and I don't think people always understand that it has nothing to do with eating the meat because it doesn't carry in the meat unless you're not cooking your meat properly. <laughs> but the, that's a whole other. That's story. a whole other conversation. But the yeah, it's the it's the fact that these bacteria just live in our world, um, and I don't know that all of them can. Well, actually, a lot of them would be um, cross species. So, um, so yeah, apparently after the livestock use dropped, it was helpful a little bit. They thought there was maybe good indications, but then COVID came along, and mm. then. We humans sort of undid the progress. I, that's the initial info I'm getting from my first research here. Um, so it, it looks like COVID did reverse sort of some of that progress that was made um, because, like you said, so many people were sick and we're trying to deal with that and chasing the next one, you know. So it's uh, it's an interesting <laughs> interesting and, battle. And there's a very specific angle that uh, you'll have that will highlight uh, that we won't fully give away at this point. So yeah. tease, right? Yes. Of sorts. Don't want to give away my story. Totally. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and we appreciate if you do take our ideas. That's always kind of fun. <laughs> Can we talk about one last thing? Or did we not uh, discuss that with the boss? This is another oh, tease we can talk, thing. Let's do, okay. talk about it, yeah. Uh, I enjoy listening to things uh, that aren't necessarily always music. And sounds have an incredible... Uh, the brain acts different. I heard a noise just the other day that took me back 20 years. Some noises take you back and prompted you to kind of step into a whole different realm. Yeah, so I, it started because at, at, at work here at Iowa PBS, they had an initiative where you could... If you wanted to, you could do something that was outside your normal scope. I don't usually do audio projects. Um, I mean, that's part of what I do. But this was sort of a different project where I wanted, um, I guess you could almost think of it as like a audio journey. And it was, um, my motivation was not as much about my own um, memories of like sounds on the farm. But it, it was kind of inspired because both my grandmothers before they died were in situations where they felt trapped in a location. So one had Alzheimer's and was in a memory care unit and the other had um, broken her back. And so she was at a hospital. And I remember her actually begging my dad, her son to like carry me outside. You know, she was, she was a farm girl and a farm and grew up as a farmer with her husband and um, raised her kids on the farm. And so it was, uh, it was hard for her to be trapped inside. So I thought, well, what if we could create something, um, where I didn't want the video because I don't want to sort of interfere with your memories of how you see your farm. But I also wanted it to be for people um, maybe who are older now who are more likely to be confined to a location. And so I decided, well, let's, what if we create the sounds of a farm from, say, the 40s and 50s? Um, and originally I was going to have it adaptable where you could, you know, change the tractors to a sound <laughs> from the 70s. Um, we haven't gotten that far, but we created a 1950s-ish um, version and um, I guess you'd say 40s to 50s 
and and it should sound like you're uh, the person you're getting up in a 19 early 1950s house and you're going into the kitchen having breakfast and going outside and walking through all these chores mm-hmm. um, so it's the sounds that you would hear as you're doing morning chores I included a lot of livestock that you would find in the upper Midwest um, really around the country but my first one was to, let's pretend we're in the upper Midwest and uh, ideally, again, I was I was building these with the idea that you could turn off certain animals if it didn't fit, but we're not to that point yet. So we're basically ready to release in some way the first um, sounds of the country audio journey. And I would love it once we get this released and hopefully publicized with Paul's help on social media, we can um, have people tell us, does this work? Do you have anyone with Alzheimer's in your family that you want to try it on? And is it meaningful to them or not? Is it just noise to them? <laughs> so... And we will promote that, and it m- could be a YouTube video, it could be just an audio file, it could just be. Yeah, we have right now. We have it set up so it's a. There's this. We have the option of a full surround sound audio file, but that's a little hard to hand off. Um, so we have stereo, and it would. I picture it working in a room with multiple speakers, but the reality is, um, you know, we we could deliver it on YouTube. We have just a close your eyes mm-hmm. <laughs> screen, like close your eyes and listen is all it says on the video. Um, but we are playing with the idea, if I can talk Dave into it, which <laughs> Dave Miller, our boss, is to try to build a, an Alexa skill where we can, someone at home, anywhere in the country could just say, you know, play the sounds of the country or play <laughs> play market to market farm sounds. I don't know how we would say it, but um, with the idea of like, that's an easy way to deliver too. Maybe we could get it next to what the Beach Boys have, you know, with pet sounds. Oh, we'll, call, we'll call it market-to-market farm sounds. There you go. I you like know, that. We can do that. So, all right. And if you have any tips, again, for the show in general, it's market-to-market at iowapbs.org. Colleen Krantz <laughs> at C-O-L-L-E-E-N dot K-R-A-N-T-Z at iowapbs.org. That's right. Do I have that right? Yep. Perfect. Anything else you want to hear about uh, from uh, people? I that's I think that covers it. You know, I'm going to think of something as soon as I'm done here. But, sure. Anything <laughs> else all. you want to cover uh, that we talked about today or any other story that we think would be a fun behind-the-scenes information for those getting secret information about the show? Yeah, well, actually, I do have one. So they're, the one I'm looking at, this is very um, – I'm not really delved into this fully yet, but I'm curious if anyone knows because I'm looking at this um, Freedmen's Act. So this is sort of a historical look at – after the Civil War, um, freed people, former slaves, were supposed to have the rights to abandon plantations or um, plantations that Confederate soldiers had owned and um, were now, maybe some of them might have been arrested for treason or, you know, just weren't coming back to. Mm. So abandoned plantations were supposed to be sort of eligible or op- an option for freedmen. And, and there's good documentation that sort of was digitized recently, and it's really interesting to look at. Um, and I'm trying to figure out where to tell the story from. Um, I'd love to find like a dis- descendants of somebody who it's gonna be really hard, but track down someone who tried to do this as um, as a freed person in the you know right after the Civil War. And I've I've found a couple examples, but I keep running into dead ends where I can't find descendants, or maybe they didn't have any. So if anyone happens to know of an old plantation that was um, managed at least for a time by a freed slave, that would be fascinating to hear about. Okay. So. 
Well, again, you know how to get a hold of her, and uh, we'll talk about it here again on a future episode of the MTOM Show podcast. Colleen, thank you as always. Appreciate it. Thank you. That'll do it. New episodes come out each Tuesday here on the YouTube channel, and we always appreciate those of you who do watch, share, like, and subscribe. I think those are all the words I'm supposed to say. Colleen's movie comes out in theaters this Friday. It is, <laughs> I feel like that's what we're doing here. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time.